All right, here we are. Welcome back. Oh, that was very musical. Sort <laughs> I know. Of. I mean, <laughs> almost. Probably be better if you had a trumpet, but otherwise. Or, or if I could sing. You know? Well, that's what I'm saying. A trumpet would improve mm. because you'd be doing less singing and more horn playing. But yeah, you know. there's that. There's that. Hey, this is Ollie. And this is Scott. This is Science in Between. It is. We're on something like 100 and whatever episode. 129. 129. Yeah, yeah. Look at us. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm going to set this up because I, you know, we were actually talking about this before they started recording. And I said, unusual hey, for us. I know, I know. It's the show before the show. And then yeah. uh, I said, hey, we probably should start the show because we're having this, the show. Right. Which we also do a lot when we start yeah. having the conversation that we're like, hey, this should be in the show. Yeah. And it wasn't. So now it, it will be. Now it is. Now it so is. I, it so is. It Look at us. We're we are recording right now. It's already here. Yeah. So uh, last week I did uh, some professional development for some some teachers out in in a, a local school. Um, this kind of came from the and maybe like uh, three or four episodes ago when we talked about um, an administrator, you know, asking where to start and all that. And that administrator is a friend of mine, Matt Matt Gay, who said it was okay for him to be referenced in this. Controversial. Uh, I know. Mm-hmm. Look at us. Friend of the show, Matt Gay. Um, who's who's a building principal out at uh, a local school district, local high school. Um, so I came out. One of the conversations that came up, it was a really great uh, session. These are these folks are really, you know, the smart teachers are really motivated to to help their 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 students, and um, they're all in like brand new classrooms, which is really cool. You know, I was in a brand new physics room, which was awesome. Mm. Um, huge space, lots of you know opportunities for creating some really cool learning opportunities for kids. So that's cool, you know. Um, but one of the things that came up was the differentiation between hands on learning. Mm inquiry learning mm. and this phenomenon based stuff, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I might as well just throw in the other things that didn't come up in the conversation, but it was like discovery because mm. you know, that's a thing. Right. Yeah. And like, you're like bristling. I see you like, yeah. I, like I, every I mean, time I say these words, you're like, kind of like, you know, well, it's like you know, five E. Yeah. Did you talk about the five E? We did not talk about the five E mm-hmm. model. We did not, but you know, um, but I think more than anything, they just wanted to, to like, what, how are these things different from one another? And, uh, and I thought, oh, you know, that's, this is how I go around life. Uh, oh, that's oh. a show. Oh, that's a show. <laughs> oh, that's a show. <laughs> oh, that's a show. And so here we are. This is a show. So that's today's show. Yeah. Um, and it was also like, I talked a little bit about like how the, uh, the differences in, in, Education, because I think the other thing that that um, this group I needed to clarify with was, you know, um, some of these folks are like, you know, not older. There's just some young, uh, some young younger teachers there. There's one I'm or sure two so. teachers um, who are probably like, I think there was one guy who was counting down. He's like, guy, he's on his last year of, of teaching, um, but they learned when we were learning, right? They learned yeah. they, they're learning from the discrepant event thing, right? Yeah. And so discrepant events came up, and they were like, okay, uh, differentiate for us the you know between phenomenon mm. and discrepant events. And I'm mm. like, oh, those are different, friends, friends. And- Friends, I'm and go said, to the board and explain <laughs> the difference. <laughs> you know, I, I I have to be honest that like every time I talk about discrepant events, I kind of feel like 
it was so disingenuous. Like it was like, you know, like sometimes the discrepant events weren't really discrepant events at all. They were like just like magic tricks. No, they're like parlor tricks. They're like they are parlor tricks. It was like, you know, they were designed for you to predict the wrong thing. It's like, oh, you predicted the wrong thing. Look at you. You In this really controlled setting, this is what happens, and it's absolutely not what you predicted. So ah, let's create some conceptual change. Right. So now you'll want to learn about this boring dissonance. Let's create some dissonance. Oh, dissonance. <laughs> Cognitive dissonance. Disequilibrium. Yes. That's oh, what it is. That's it what is. Piaget would call it. Disequilibrium. Dis- right. Which, you know, is yeah, disequilibrium. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can get that by banging your head against the wall too, but that doesn't make it a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> all right. So let's let's go through this. Like, because I mean they're all things. They're all like, you know, practices. Practice. Sure. And yeah, practice. Uh, they're all practices. We're going to talk about practice. Um, well, where where would you like to start? Not the in game. This mess? Not the game. Not the game. This is practice. <laughs> practice. But where where would you like to start in this? Uh I don't know. Should we? Uh, I, should we? I don't. I feel like we shouldn't bury the lead, right? Like we should go right to phenomenon based, and then, or do we start the other way and talk know. about it historically? I don't know. Hey, hey, this is your show, dude. So uh, you, you get to pick. Ah. All right. Well, let's start with, I guess we'll start with hands-on. Let's start with hands-on. Like, what do you, I know it's so, it's like. The lowest hanging fruit. It is. It is. And now we'll go to, you know, we'll go hands-on discovery. Well, can can we also talk about the the sad little partner to hands-on, which is minds-on. So that's another one, which just like feels like somebody's yanking my teeth out with a pair of pliers, but hands-on, minds-on. We can talk about the two of those. Yeah, they usually go in hand in hand. Like, hey, yeah. hands on, minds on, science. Yeah, yes. It's just, it's just so okay. So why don't you, why don't you go? You start. Oh. You start. I want to hear that. <laughs> I want to hear the right answer. I mean, the, yeah, right. The right answer. Well, I mean, the truth is, right. It's it's pretty obvious, right? Like, just because you're you're physically engaged with something doesn't mean that there's any meaningful science involved and doesn't mean that you're doing scientific practices. I mean, the example that I, a lot of this happens, well, it happens across K-12. I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw any particular grade under, under the bus, but like the, the canonical example for me is like elementary kids building models of ants out of styrofoam balls and, and, and pipe cleaners. And it's like, okay, like that's art ish. I don't know. I, sorry, Leslie, because um, <laughs> um, it's probably not art either. But um, but it's it's you know there's nothing scientific about that. Um, so their kids are not actively engaged in thinking about scientific ideas. They're not talking to each other about scientific ideas. There's nothing in there that's science. It's just sticking pipe cleaners into styrofoam balls and making it represent something that you've seen before. So so just the idea of hands on in general, I I think is unhelpful minds on doesn't really improve it much because it's i mean both of them are so vague they're they're very unspecific um and so they can become anything right hands on minds on like i'm going to ask the kids a question and now we're doing minds on science it's like i don't know come on so so is it is it your you bristle at the fact that it doesn't reflect authentic practices in science i think yeah i mean at the, at that's actually at the, the at, at the core of what you're um, yeah, I don't know if it's at the core or the far edge. Cause it's like the fundamental thing I dislike about it is I don't even think it's teaching science. 
So it's not even that they're not engaged in science practices. I think most status quo teaching is better than what we think of it with most hands-on science stuff. Oh, so let, let, I, I want to put you in the corner right there. Yeah. So you would rather have like a uh, a didactic lecture-based instruction than that. Well, I mean, it's hard because, again, hands-on, yeah. minds-on science covers all sorts of things. So yeah. you could argue phenomenon-based teaching is hands-on, minds-on minds science. On, right. yeah. So, I mean, part of the reason I don't like it is is it's unhelpful and unspecific. Like, one of the challenges of doing this kind of teaching is that it's incredibly comp- complicated and sophisticated work and requires framework. It, yeah. it requires a way to understand how to do this work. And if you just say, do hands-on science, it's like, well, okay, now anything yeah. they do counts. And then and then they, how do you improve your practice if your goal is hands-on, minds-on science? Like that's not a targetable practice. It's just a, it's just a vague term. So yeah, that's, and that's it, my it, problem. And it's basically, it, it sounds to me like, let's just keep kids busy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it and, came out of like anti-lecture sort of like, oh, right. we want kids to do hands-on work. And, and I think, Yes, but the hands-on, like it, and minds-on was an attempt to say, well, it should be meaningful work. It shouldn't be building ants out of styrofoam balls. It should be, they should be using their head for something, but it still doesn't help us understand like what those things are. Like, what are you putting your hands on and what are you using your mind for? Right. And neither of those things are specified in hands-on, minds-on. All right. So hands-on, minds-on. Done. Done. We're just going to say. Yeah, just no, le- leaving it. Or leave, just leaving it over there. Don't it's touch that. Ill-defined. Yet. It doesn't re- reflect authentic practice. No, it's in some ways, n- you know, not as good as lecture. It's maybe. Not, not. Yeah, I mean, it's it could be lecture, right? I it mean, could be right. I mean, I have be. them taking guided notes. Yeah, see, that's, that's hands. Hand, they're using that's their hands hands. on, right? Yes. Using their head and their hands. Head and hands. I had had them singing "Kumbaya," and that's you know they're using their head and they're. I don't know, man. Head, okay, hands, so knees you and toes, you get to pick the next. Oh, jeez, <laughs> that's a deep cut. Um, <laughs> now 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 it's time for you to pick. You get to pick the next thing that we're gonna okay. Do. Well, I mean, I I would say like inquiry. Let's do uh, no, let's do discovery because I see discovery as being a little bit mm-hmm. more like it's it's kind of like in that same um, ill-defined world that hands on minds on because i think that discovery is um intended to help students in in the best case you know develop some of those ideas on their own so students are developing the ideas on their own um from some sort of like engaging with some sort of Thing, whether it's like you know some experiment or some demonstration or something, it's definitely hands on minds on right. I mean, they're doing that. Of course, it is. Everything but they're is. they're uh, discovering that concept or that idea. Or, but I mean, my issue with discovery is that's often like a confirmation lab. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. that's like just you know. Offer it a different place in the, in the cycle, the learning cycle. Right? Yeah. It's like we move that up so that we haven't really talked to them about this concept yet. So we're going right. to give them the confirmation lab. And then at the end, we're going to say, well, that thing you found, let's put a name on it. 
Yeah. You know? Probably not even that. I mean, yeah. Because because you're probably naming the thing even before. It's just you're finding out something about the thing. So it's like, oh, we're going to do a conservation of momentum lab. And then you're going to find out, hey, momentum is conserved. Ooh. Yeah. Sneaky. Yeah, well, I mean, I, mean I, don't, I, don't, we, I don't mean to be so critical about it, but I mean. That's but what I, we're here for. Right. <laughs> we're here for the critical nature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're here to beat up on stuff we don't like. Oh, well, I mean, I think it, if it can support curiosity, I think that's a good thing. You know, if yeah. it's, you know, and I, I'm not anti-curiosity and I'm not anti, you know, engaging kids in the process of science. Those things, I'm here for it. I'm here for both of those processes. Um, the challenge to me is that kind of like the discrepant events, you know, it's a setup. It, sometimes it's a setup, right? That the students were putting them through an an artificial process. And, and it's like, oh, you discovered this thing? And it's like, it, they're not really discovering anything. They're They're not like Magellan, right? They're not like, Right. There's no, no middle school kid in Pennsylvania is going to rediscover any of this scientific stuff. Right. I and mean, right. it's just not going to happen. Um, yeah. I mean, for me, the well, I have I have a couple issues with discovery. One is that it tends to be used in a in a negative way. Teachers tend to use discovery as a negative description of something. So, oh, that's like discovery learning. Like we we did that in the 60s and 70s or whatever. And mm. we, we don't do that anymore um, because it was boo. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think the other thing is, is there's an implication to discovery that, um, you know, we talk about student agency a lot, but but it implies that there's like no structure to it. It's just like, yeah, kids are just going to discover. Right. And, and and the whole point that I think we talk about a lot is like phenomenon driven, ambitious science teaching practices. This requires tremendous amounts of structure and organization and planning. Like it, it's it's not a spontaneous thing. Right. It it feels spontaneous in the moment because like many great creative things, it has tremendous amount of structure to it, right? Like this, it's like music or it's like dance or it's like art, right? There's tremendous amounts of structure. And within that structure is where the creativity takes place. But without that structure, it's just a mess. It's just nothing. It's not science. It's not learning. It's just like wandering around in the woods, like pointing at stuff. And, and that's not what science is. No. So, um, so I think that's my, my beef is that it, it just doesn't. And again, it's also like hands on minds on it's mostly vague. It do, it's very unclear. Like, well, what does discovery mean? Like, do you mean that there's a process to that discovery? Because science has a process. Science doesn't just, you know, it's not just people sitting around in chairs, hoping they think up good, good ideas and then sharing them with each other. Like that's not how that works either. So, um, yeah, so it, it feels like, uh, while hands on minds on sort of turns practice into this like n- nothing activity discovery implies that there is no practice that you just you just discover stuff and uh, it's like Ugh, no thank you <laughs> like nah. no, no that's not how that works because it also deprofessionalizes the teachers it makes it sounds like sound like you don't have anything to do like you're just there to watch the kids discover things and and you know but that's not but that's really not how any but do you think teachers were actually doing that? Like, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Well, I mean, originally when a lot of this happened, like, you know, you look at the Summerhill schools in England, like this, this is the, 
the premise of some of those schools, like the, and there continue to be, especially out of the tech community, like the unlearning community right. is right in that same wheelhouse, right? It's like, just give kids a computer and let them discover what they're interested in. It's like, well, that's, I'm sorry, that's dumb. Like it, it, and I'm not saying that kids shouldn't waste time. Kids should waste time. That's part of growing up and, you know, being bored and doing that stuff. But, but like, you're just like that idea that they're, that, we should not structure the way people learn doesn't make any sense to me at all. Now that doesn't well, mean it's like, gonna... it's like that Ted video. You ever see that Ted video where they put a computer out in like rural India, like just, and they had it connected to the, have you seen this one? You know which one I'm talking about? No, but I'm getting angry just thinking about it already. And so they just put like, they put it out like in a public uh, square yeah. and with no directions. Right. And they just had it and then they filmed it and they watched what, like how, the kids would interact because like the, the uh, adults wouldn't and the kids came and uh, they figured out how to use it. And this thing, they, this whole thing makes me so angry. You're it's, shaking it's, your head violently. Uh, oh my God. It's, I mean, beyond the like, um, like racist and sort of, uh, like, I don't know, like, Oh my gosh, this it's really making me upset. Like to me, I always I just watch that video and go, of all the things that community needed, that's what they brought. They brought a computer and just set it out well, there. Well, and then they like, filmed it like it's right. like some sort of anthropological experiment. Yeah. With, it's really gross. That is really gross. And well, it's makes on me Ted. Angry. Uh, well, of course it is. I mean, there's lots of garbage on Ted, especially now that it's TEDx, you know, so anybody right. can host one. Any right? local yeah. any local we have a, we have a, the- we have a TEDx PSU. We we have one in, in Lancaster. We were running one in Lancaster and it was uh yeah, it was great. I mean, some of that stuff's fantastic. Fantastically interesting as lectures go, which see earlier memo of hundred and twenty eight <laughs> episodes of this podcast, which is eighteen say, eighteen minute lectures. It's eighteen minutes. I mean or less. Yeah, they're fine. Like yeah. okay. They they might get you curious about something, but I I would say that before we started this episode, I wasn't thinking we we're going to poop on Ted today. That was well. <laughs> here, I, we, here we are. See an earlier memo about what we do on this podcast. <laughs> like, yeah, we're here to you know take the wind out of people's sails. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I think um, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about inquiry. I don't like, I don't need to say I don't more have about anything Ted. more. Yes. I mean, until you and I do a TED talk, and then yeah. about how then, maybe then that's the, the TED talk we need to do is how much TED talks suck. That could be our TED talk. That has got to be already out there. That has to be. I, is, I bet like, there is a non TED talk that is that way. But could you actually get into TED or a TEDx event where you say this is why this whole model is broken and we need to stop doing TED talks? Right, because it's the one to many. So yeah. it's uh, it's not yeah. discourse. Yeah. No, it's not relational. It's not educational. It's something else. I mean, it's entertaining, but. Well, there you go. Okay. There endeth. <laughs> there endeth talk. part two of the episode. <laughs> On to part three, inquiry. Inquiry. Uh, well, I will say that like, you know, this was, this is a big part of my dissertation when this came, like when, you know, the science standards came out, what, like 92, you know, uh, yeah, is those before that even, but yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Probably like late 89. 80s. Yeah. 80, late, late eighties, early nineties. That's when they, uh, there was a book in 92 that was specific to inquiry. Inquiry in the national science right. education standards. Yeah. Right. So the, uh, National Science Education Standards came out in late eighties, and then there was a a separate guy because inquiry was so ill defined 
in that original document that they're like, yeah. we need to come back and fully define what this is. And it was like, there was a cottage. They're probably for the last 20 years. It was a cottage industry around in- inquiry. Yeah. No, it was 96. It turns out. I did not realize that. I guess I'm thinking of the triple AS uh, okay. science, scientific literacy was earlier than that, but yeah. So the, the national science education standards were in 1996. And then there was the inquiry and in the national science education standards that followed that. Yes. So uh, inquiry, I think that, you know, it's a big thing with this. Like, I think of all of the industries that were built around this, probably the one that like the model or the tool that was the 5E, right? I mean, yeah, except that predates. Really? The 5E model was developed by BSCS in eight, uh, 1987. Oof. Yep. So the 5E, no, actually not. So I don't know if we want to talk about 5E first and then inquiry, but but the original, I remember reading at some point, there was a Journal of Research on Science Teaching article about, about inquiry teaching or inquiry science teaching. I think it was by Joe Novak, and it was like from 1960 or somewhere in the 60s. So inquiry as a, as a concept in science education um, – we could go to Dewey if we want to go back. Like, we, like right. Like That's we, true. I mean, well, and he he named the scientific method, which of course was an albatross around science ed's neck for a long time. Right. Um, and arguably, I think the problem with inquiry is, and and the way it was characterized in the National Science Education Standards was that it treated, and and this is something that the new standards responded to, is it treated inquiry as a separate thing, as its own yeah. sort of standard. Um, as opposed to trying to talk about it as an integrated part of everything. Um, so, so it's not like this separate little thing that we did every once in a while. It's like, okay, hey, we're going to do an inquiry unit. And then right. we just would do an inquiry unit. Right. And it was like, it was sort of like an update of the scientific method, which, you know, again, this is how things progress. So it was, it was a change. It, it pushed um, and, and better articulated what, what this sort of like the scientific method could look like in classrooms. It, it, the idea in the idealized world, I think inquiry as it was characterized was, was an attempt to get us to where we're now talking about phenomenon driven um, science teaching, but it didn't quite have the structure it needed to, um, to characterize what that looked like in classrooms. So it ended up being, you know, sort of like the scientific method. It was a little better than that. There were certainly, you know, some of the examples in the book, you know, there are things like kids sitting in a classroom and they see a row of trees in the, in the, the this is my favorite, I don't know, favorite, my example that I, I know where you're going. I yeah. know where you're going. So there's these trees in the, in the, um, in the playground and one of them is dead, but the other ones aren't. So it's like, like hmm. the teacher builds a whole unit around the fact that one of these trees is dead and the other ones aren't. So, you know, on some level, it had the same notions, but it couldn't quite get over the hump. Um, and part of that, too, was that even though they were called the ni- National Science Education Standards, they were not adopted in any kind of national way. So they were more treated like a document that science educators looked at um, and that curriculum designers looked at to some degree. But since they weren't national standards, they they couldn't really push everyone to think think about it that way. It, it ended up being sort of a niche. Yeah. So, so for me, I mean, I I wrote a dissertation on inquiry based instruction and how yeah. teachers, new teachers, incorporate it. And um, for me, I think it was the the process. It's kind of like 
discovery based. It's a little bit more um, operationalized mm-hmm. and it's to help students develop, you know, questions and, and their under, conceptual understanding of the world. Um, it's structured and, you know, I think um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that the difference to mm-hmm. me is, is the focus, like what's the outcome, right? Mm-hmm. Is the outcome to develop a conceptual understanding or is it the outcome to help them explain things? Mm-hmm. Right. No, I think that's right. I think, I think the, um, it still leaned into the structure part and, and we can sort of maybe talk about the five E in, in the context of sure. that too, because I think, so five E was elaborate or, Wait, engage, explore, explain, elaborate, and evaluate. So those are the five E's. And then there was a later, I think there's now more E's. I don't, I don't. So many E's. I don't keep up with the E's, just like I don't keep up with all the letters that they add to the, um, the, the, the content knowledge thing that shall not be named. Um, <laughs> I the, thought you were going to say it. I no, thought it was try. I, 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 I couldn't, I, I was stuttering. I couldn't, I was like, I, I can't like, say it. I can't say it. I can't thing. say it. Uh, no, yeah, I'm not going to say I'll it. I'll say it. PCK. Uh, so yeah. So just like that and it's offspring keep adding letters. Um, it, the five E model has added more letters. Um, but I think it, the five E and inquiry had the same problem in that they were seen as a, as a sequence, right. Rather than a process that had interwoven, you know, and that practice was an integration of all of these things and that they didn't happen in a lockstep. Um, And again, I think that's a legacy of the, of John Dewey's unintentional characterization of the scientific method. That it was and, linear lockstep. It was right. like, you do this and then you do this. And even like, if you look at the models, they show it as iterative, right? But they don't show like that you can go from engage to evaluate. Right. It's like, there's a specific cycle that you go through, right? right. I mean, and evaluate like, is what the teacher does. It's not what the student, right. you know. So it's, it's just like any time that they define really messy processes in some sort of linear way. Like I think about it, like instructional design, like the big instructional design thing is Addy, right? Yep. And maybe that's a little bit more linear than some other things, but ah, come on. Like yep. it is like the Addy model is, is, is it's messy. It is not as linear lockstep, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think, um, you know, NGSS doesn't really do this, but it does bring up the idea that like, maybe when you're characterizing a set of practices, you shouldn't put them in the order that they appear. I mean, even we do this in AST too, that we start with illicit and then we ongoing thinking mm-hmm. and then, but that, that makes it feel like that's the only way to do it. It's, it makes a little more sense in teaching practice than I think it does in scientific practice, but, but um, it does, you know, this, these sort of mechanisms, this, you know, like you're saying, these characterizing of a process in a set of linear steps is is always going to be somewhat problematic compared to real practice, which almost never, if not never works like that. I mean, CER has some of the same problems in that, it, you know, that if you characterize it always as claims, evidence, reasoning, it feels like right. it always works. You have that to way. do it it's, that way. Right. Right. And actually in the process, it, it doesn't work that way at all, but yeah, in the final form, you have to structure it that way. Cause that's the genre of communication that we've developed. But, um, but that but doesn't it, mean that that's the way it happens. I feel like inquiry kind of took on that same sort of like ill-defined, like even though it was somewhat structured, 
you know, it was still ill-defined um, enough that a lot of people were like, yeah, this is inquiry, right? Yeah. And so, like, I think of of Pogel, right, which is, yep. you know, physics- Process-oriented guided, guided inquiry, inquiry. Learning. Yeah. P-O-G-I-L. So, mm-hmm. And so that- came out of the physics community locally. I mean, it's a, it's a Pennsylvania product. Um, it came out of Franklin and Marshall. Yeah. As far as I, I, physics and chemistry. Physics both. and chemistry it, it there. Became, I, I think it's probably everything now, but you yeah. Know. But I mean, this is, this is like, it's kind of guided note-taking, right? I mean, it is guided. Well, I think it's evolved, but I think initially. The, the initial, was, right. It was very much a, you're working kind of independently sometimes collaboratively working through you know problem sets and answering questions and then reevaluating those questions and and it was called inquiry and and I always ha- struggled with that I always struggled yeah. with you know cuz it didn't I mean, it didn't fit how I saw inquiry at least not in in a cuz it was a, um it wasn't hands on minds on or discovery or discovery <laughs> right. yeah but no, I mean, I mean, look, it, it was a we, it's well researched. That, that stuff, there's a lot of research behind its impact. But I mean, we would argue how like the data they bring to bear on its impact, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, and and these are you know now we're shading into that. I don't know if we want to. That's like a whole other episode to talk about how you think about comparing different models of science teaching sure. through research and data collection. But we'll I mean, put a I pin think, in that. huh? We'll put a we'll pin, put in, a pin that. in that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think you're, I agree. The only thing I'd add about the characterization is again, I think the problem with the characterization is it was treated of inquiry for that matter or Pogel or 5e or any of these is it was treated as if the process was independent of the practice and the content and all the other stuff that go into it, that it wasn't. A, a description of a messy thing where people learn. It was like these are these are specific things that can be learned. Like you can learn how to make a hypothesis, and we're going to teach you how to make a hypothesis. And and I think that that attempt that that um, trying to to extract the practice from the context in which it happens is where you get this sort of arbitrary lockstep set of steps that um, that many of these things have have suffered from and as you say that leads to people being able to say like well i already do this in my classroom because right. i have kids ask questions and i have kids do this and i and here it is and you, you say well but it's not you're not really doing it you're doing this other thing and you're, you're really just doing very you know traditional pedagogy this is not inquiry and they they would say well what is then why like it seems right. like it is I'm, I'm doing the stuff they collect the data they analyze the data so why is this not inquiry? And, and and it was it was very hard. I mean, I think, you know, you and I and our our little group that had these conversations, I think we had a more nuanced and thoughtful view on what that looked like, as did most of the science education community, the research community. But translating that into practice. Right. In the classroom practice well. in, in K to twelve classrooms was was hard. It didn't. Oh. It didn't work very well. Which is what my dissertation was on was how hard that was because like right. we had these two teachers go out there and try to do it and just was like yeah we don't do that here no it's hard and here's some um, PowerPoint slides yeah here, here's your curriculum it's PowerPoint slides so I mean those are the cultural reasons why it fails but I think you know the the characterization also and and it's hard it's hard now I mean I think it's hard for um 
it's hard for folks to get their heads around even why these new standards are different. Like what is different about them? It seems like there's these practices. Well, those seem like the inquiry things and there's these DCIs. Well, that seems like the content that we stuff learned and the cross cutting concepts. Okay. Uh, They're a little different, but we've had versions of that. We've been talking about patterns forever and cause uh, and effect. I mean, we do all that. Like we do all that. Yeah. So it is hard. I think the shift for me, and this is where I kind of like, landed when I did the presentation was the difference is the starting point with a, like rooting it in a phenomenon, right? Rooting it. To, so you're giving that as the a phenomenon to study, but then what, what are you trying? Like, what's the outcome? You know, mm-hmm. the outcome, I mean, I guess you're trying to direct them to, you know, developing this evidence-based explanation, but mm-hmm. the, it's the, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we do that? And it's the, it's the discourse. It's all yep. about the discourse. And I think those are the 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 differences in some of those other models is that that it's not discourse, discourse conversation based where we're arguing out with different models and different evidence to, that are brought to bear. And I think that's where they went. You know, the teachers I worked with last week were like, yeah, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't we don't have those conversations in our classroom. We don't argue out evidence and we don't argue and i you know i was trying to show them you know there's a lot multiple ways in our group our professional development group one of the things we always try to do is to talk about urgency a sense of urgency what's the what's mm-hmm. the sense of urgency because that's the thing that promotes change and so we do it different ways like you mm-hmm. do it you know by talking about you know science having right answers you know some of our uh colleagues want to talk about like the tim's data and how you know America's not doing so hot in, you know, mm-hmm. science. Um I I really positioned it from, you know, the public discourse around science mm-hmm. and how science, you know, there was a lot of information that was being shared about science in really short periods of time. And then the amount of unsubstantiated and false claims that are being shared out. And I shared some data from uh the Brookings Institutes recently that talked about podcasts. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the amount of in political podcasts, the amount of false and unsubstantiated claims that happen in, in podcasts and in, 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 across the political divide, whether you're like you know left or right or whatever, conservative, liberal, whatever it is, there are false and unsubstantiated claims that is being shared on a regular basis in those podcasts. And so we have to arm people with the skills to be able to you know recognize that. And mm-hmm. how do we do that? And it's not just about looking at like dot orgs or, you know, all the information literacy stuff that, sure. you know, gets taught, you know, okay, how do you evaluate like a source of a data? That's different mm-hmm. than evaluating claims. You know, mm-hmm. evaluating sources of data is, is important, not knocking it. Mm-hmm. But how do you evaluate claims that are being made, especially when those claims are coming from, you know, both reputable sources, like let alone irreputable sources, like, you know, some of the, like some of the bad actors out there who are in, in, in those political podcasts beyond the, um, beyond like talking about politics and elections and guns and, you know, those things, the big topics were climate, health, and science. Those were the Mm -hmm. big ones, you know? And, And it's like, yeah. Yeah, I that's, mean, I think that's us. Well, I think it comes down to um, uh, reasoning. You know, we talk about this in various versions, but like the big shift for me in phenomenon-driven teaching is 
that it is driven by the ideas that the students have, yeah. right? It is their ideas that are the most important thing. So as long as you think that your ideas or really you as a stand-in for the scientific community, in other words, the science ideas are the most important thing, then you can't understand what this pedagogy is about. So all these other things try to structure this process but the pro like inquiry and the scientific method and the five E model, they tried to give structure to the process. But what they didn't articulate well is the agency that is necessary to shift the process from the teacher doing the hard work to the student doing the hard work. And that that shift in agency is really the big difference between phenomenon driven. I mean, yes, there's a phenomenon at the beginning, but the reason it's there is so that students have a way to generate ideas about the thing that you're trying to help them understand, right? The phenomenon's purpose is is to do that. It's not there to to teach the kids something. It's there to be a context where they can think and generate their own ideas about the science domain knowledge that you want them to be thinking about. Yeah, that came up in this session too, was, you know, one of the teachers asked, like, how, like, how much planning should go in to it and how much is it just a free-for-all they go well you know it's you want to draw on the student's knowledge but i mean there's a finite set of ideas that kids can bring to bear on a phenomenon right i mean yep. and being ready and and that your job as a teacher is to think about what those you know ideas could be mm-hmm. and be prepared to follow their you know their line of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so that means that, you know, thinking about the possibilities and being ready and what kinds of, you know, experiences and activities and, and investigations can you create um, that can, or the students could come up with, right. And like all already being prepared for that. And especially after you do this, you know, a, a unit a couple of times, you're going to recognize the students are going to go, but those investigations may go, a, B, C versus mm-hmm. C, B, A versus B, C, A or whatever, right? Yeah. It's just switching the orders of things based on the students, but recognizing that there is a finite number of ideas that the students are going to generate. I mean, yeah. unless they came out with like, you know, they're tiny green men, right? Yeah, um, well, that, right. They uh, are going to generate, uh, you know, over the course of, of uh, you know, especially multiple years, you're very likely to get some really wackadoo ideas. But the point is, how many ideas can they generate that are total um, that can't be supported by the evidence? I mean, yeah. the, the, those those crazy ideas. Sorry, the, those non-normative ideas that get brought up um, are you know are quickly eliminated because they don't explain things well and they're not supported by the evidence. So so kids will quickly get rid of their own ideas like that because it's like well that. It doesn't work. And so once it doesn't work, then why keep it around? So, um, but they can't figure out it doesn't work if they're not talking to other people. If you're just telling them it doesn't work, I mean, this is, you know, if you want to talk about that, the fundamental premise about free phenomenon driven science teaching was that you can change people's minds by telling them yeah. that they're wrong. Now, you can do that in sneaky ways, like the the way that, you know, you were talking about discrepant events where you show them something, they're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that. And then you try and give them the right answer right then. But the problem with that is they tend to apply it just to the thing that you've given them this discrepant event about, because that's all that you've really 
giving them something to think think about with. So they're like, "Ooh, yeah." Um, but they've got to change their own minds. They've got to change their own minds, and we're creating environments in which that happens. Yep, and that's the that's the power of this. But that can only happen when they are doing the thinking. Yeah. And the reasoning and the talking and that's and hard why work. It's so discoursey, yeah. Discoursey is that a, an official adjective? Right yeah, there? it's official adjective. I just, yeah, yeah. I'll yeah. write that down. So I will five, incorporate that into my five D discoursey opportunity. <laughs> yeah. And then and the next year it'll be the six E discoursey, so we can yeah. have a second book because we got to have you know. Yes, multiple books. Multiple you know. books. Yeah. One for each D. Uh, okay, I think we've we've kind of moved into enough. silliness. Yeah, you silliness. Know? Yeah, yeah. But I think I think hopefully that helps people start to think about the differences. I mean, and and yes, maybe ten or fifteen or less years from now, we're going to have a slightly new articulation of some of these ideas. Um, and I think at that point, does that mean that phenomenon-driven science teaching was wrong? No, not any more than inquiry was wrong or that whatever, right? Like, again, it, it's a misunderstanding in the same way that it's a misunderstanding to think about science that's that way. It's a misunderstanding to think about science education that way. We're developing our understandings. They're evolving and changing. Sure. As they change, they're they're going to disagree somewhat with previous notions because we get more data, we get better understandings, we do more thinking about it, and that improves our ideas. And that that's, again, exactly why all this is important because people need to understand that that's the way the process works. When we change our mind, that's good news. That means that we've improved our idea and it's more evidence-based and it and explains more things. That's why an idea gets changed, not just because somebody tells me it's wrong, but because it is better supported by the evidence and explains more things and makes more sense to more people. So that's the place where you say, okay, yeah, that's good. It evolved. We want it to. And that's joyful. Joyful. There it you is go. joyful. Yeah. Right. Nice job. I see what I did there. Yeah. I'm I all did. about I think, the transition. I, I think literally everybody saw what you did there. Well, I'm just, you know. Doing my job, you know, so, helping out, you know, being a helping dad. Drive the, yeah, <laughs> being a dad. <laughs> All right. So, uh, at least you was, didn't do it with a pun. I know. I was like trying that. to think of one. I was working real hard over here. I was Googling puns. Puns. No, I wasn't. God. I yeah. Puns. You're like, <laughs> I hate puns. Yeah. You hate them? I hate them. Wow. They're, the, they're not even the lowest form of humor. I don't even know what they are. They're, we're not going to talk about that. We're talking about joys. This we're, the curmudgeonly section of the show is now over. We're we're now talking about joy. <laughs> Do you have a joy? Sure, I have a joy. Um, so I I this past I grew, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, and I rarely get back to my hometown um, for a whole bunch of reasons. I um, but it just isn't. I don't get back there very often, which is sad, and I'm sorry that I don't. Um, but I did this weekend get to go home. And um, while I was there, I ate at um, arguably the greatest deli in the world, depending on your POV. That's not a biased statement it's at all. It's not a biased sample at all. Um, uh, but it is it is an exceptional place, uh, and it is called Zingerman's Delicatessen. And it isn't really a deli. It's become a little empire there in Ann Arbor. So it started out in 1985 when I was in high school. 
as a, as a sandwich shop, a really good sandwich shop. And they just have expanded their business over time. And it's a shop now and it's got a coffee. They bought up a bunch of the buildings around there. They roast their own coffee. They make their own bread. They make their own cheese. They, they do all this wow. stuff. They're, they're, they're really, a. I mean, and they're, ex, they're an exceptional employer. Like they've never tried to, to turn this into a, a chain. Um, and they take really good care of their employees and treat them as professionals, um, and help them develop and learn. Um, so I, I have a lot of respect for them, the two guys who founded it and, and the, the, um, the business itself, but I also, they make really good sandwiches. Now you will hear naysayers who say they're expensive sandwiches, which is true, but they're not like crazy expensive sandwiches. So my joy was I got to go to Ann Arbor this weekend and I got to eat a Georgia Reuben, which is a turkey coleslaw, Swiss cheese and, um, uh, oh my gosh, what's that? The, the is it Thousand the Island, place? Thousand Island. Thank you, Thousand Island dressing. That's a, that's a Rachel. Un- no, we're not going to discuss this. This is, that's a Georgia Reuben, and it's grilled on challah. And it's uh, so it doesn't uh, have rye bread. No, because it's a Georgia Reuben. It's turkey. It's it's not a Reuben. Reuben's a, a whole a, other a, thing. Like a Rachel. No, it's not. That's not. It's not a thing. I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. So if I uh, went in anywhere else besides this deli. Mm-hmm. In in Arbor, yeah, you'd probably could get away with ordering a Rachel, and you'd get that sandwich. Yeah, okay. I'm still saying it's a Georgia <laughs> Reuben. All right, what you want? Why um, Georgia? Like why Georgia? I, I don't know, man. That was their thing. I I don't know. I'm pretty I sure if you went to Georgia, you probably would have oh, a hard time finding. Of course food. not. Yeah, you couldn't even get a Rachel in Georgia. I would think you'd have a hard time finding challah bread down there. Yeah, uh, I'm just yeah. saying. You know, it's like it might the, not be yeah. challah actually, but I should check that. Anyway, whatever whatever bread it is on, whatever it is, it's a delicious sandwich. It's uh, if it is called Rachel somewhere else because they took that idea and changed the name somewhere else because they wanted to spread the wealth of this amazing sandwich. Um, I think the, the Rachel is, may predate 1985. I'm just may, gonna it may, it may, it may. <laughs> You're creating your own little alternative <laughs> yes, reality over there. So stop. Stop uh, <laughs> being a buzzkill here. Let me let me tell my story the way I want to tell it. <laughs> so anyway, it's a great deli. It makes amazing sandwiches. Um, I mean, it has mail order and stuff like that. But um, is that your go to pl- like sandwich if you go there? Is that your go to yeah. sandwich? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I mean, I eat lots of sandwiches there, or I used to when I when I lived there. Um, there were others that I would eat, but that one, um, when when the family would go to get sandwiches, that was my go to sandwich. Yes. Um, and uh, they also make lots of other good stuff, but it, it's a it's a tr- I'd say a pretty traditional in some respects Jewish deli. It has a, a lot of that vibe. You know, you can get matzo ball soup, you can get kavelta fish, you can get a lot of the traditional um, Jewish foods that you would get. A lot of them made in house, but it it but it's just a good deli. And yes, I'm sure there are New York delis that are better than this deli and whatever we can and Rachel's whatever that actually is made up sandwich. <laughs> But I strongly recommend if you're in Ann Arbor, go to Zingerman's Deli, have yourself a sandwich. Um, don't worry about the fact that it's costing you a lot of money. Because if you bought the if you bought the same kind of sandwich, if you bought the Georgia Reuben and called it a Rachel and bought it in New York City, it probably cost you more. Yeah. So you know, enjoy the sandwich. It's a it's, an, it's a nice environment. They have other restaurants there because they're a little local. But I I really like people that 
develop something local and just make it really good and don't feel like they have to turn it into McDonald's um, to make it a success. And they, I think they've done a really great job of that. So um, it's great. So there it is. So mine is uh, timely. Mm-hmm. Um, so recording this uh, the week uh, of Fat Tuesday and mm. Ash Wednesday. And so this weekend um, I picked up a king cake. Oh, all right. Uh, I know. So I'm a big, big fan of New Orleans and Mardi Gras. Mm. And not not that king cakes are specific to uh, New Orleans, but that's what it you know, it brings up those emotions for it me. It evokes for you. Yes. And so uh, this weekend I taught on Saturday. I, t- I teach a, a doctor class on, on Saturdays. And so I picked up a king cake to take to class with me oh, for my wow. students. So there's a local bakery that makes uh, a whole variety of them. So like a cinnamon one, a cream cheese one, a cherry one, and so on. I think they have like 12, 15 different flavors. I bought the cinnamon one. That's my favorite. Um, the king cake is – it's it's a uh it's actually designed as an epiphany cake. Like I I don't know how it was taken over by, you know, the as the beginning of Lent, but I'm sure somebody has some history on that. Um but um if you're not familiar, it's like a sweet bread cake. It's more of like like a bread more than a cake. Um and uh there's like you have to google it if you don't know, but there's usually yeah. some colorful icing on top. Mm-hmm. Um and the, the the trick is that it was designed for epiphany. It's called King Cake because of the three kings who, you know, the three wise men who come to uh, find, you know, they follow the North Star and boom, they they find the, the, the baby Jesus. The cake, the king cake has a little plastic baby in it. And now actually you have to put it in yourself, like, because none of the. Because, public... Yeah, because they don't want to get sued. No, it wants to get sued over choking on the baby. On choking over the baby. So, um, yeah. So it is my favorite favorite tradition of this time of the year. Not that I'm a practicing, you know, you know, Catholic or I, I follow Lent or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I I do like a king cake, and I always I always like it happening at this time of the year. So king cake, king cake, king Check cake. It out. Yeah, nice. delicious. Do you want to explain the epiphany part of the king cake or like? Oh, yeah. Well, the epiphany is happens after. So, a lot, you know, most people think about, you know, Christmas as being the day, right, that, you mm-hmm. know, the wise men came. But, you know, the 12 days of Christmas starts on Christmas. Mm-hmm. So the 12 days, it's the 12 days after Christmas. So it's not the 12 days before Christmas. The day that we celebrate is Christmas, December, well, we, whoever practices, yeah. you know, you and I, we mm-hmm. celebrate December 25th. Well, that starts the 12 days of Christmas. And Epiphany is 12 days later, which is the day that, uh, you know, it's like, oh, we realize that this is, you know, this is where the three wise men come and find. And in a lot of other religions, they celebrate that day as Christmas. Mm. Epiphany is the day of Christmas. Interesting. And, I didn't and know that. so, so King Cake is the cake that would was originally designed for that day. Mm. I could be nice. way off on all this, but I think uh, I'm I got sounds like good to me. 75% of it. Maybe but, 70%. Yeah, 70%. So sort maybe. of like the Rachel versus the Georgia Roman. Um <laughs> so it's 12 days of Christmas and then an additional 12 days till Epiphany. So it's 24 no. days. No. 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 So wait, 12 days after Christmas was quite a while ago. You're right. Oh no, yeah. That's what I'm saying. This is this cake is not a 
a Fat Tuesday cake. It, it's used in Fat Tuesday, but it was originally for Epiphany, which is way back in January. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So it's it it's I think it's just because you know there's this time period of celebration between you know January what is that sixth seventh you mm-hmm. know and to you know the far the beginning of Lent. Sure. Right. And so, and then at Lent, it's like, hey, the party's over. Party's we're over. Gonna do, we got 40 days yeah. in the wilderness. We got to go off in the wilderness, yeah. suffer. We give up something, you know? Yeah. So this is like where Fat Tuesday, get all that fat out of you. You know, we're going to, yeah. you know, eat bland stuff for the next. This is like, you ever see Chocolat, that movie? Yeah. That's, that's, that's what it is. You know, it's like, hey, Lent's coming. Got to get rid coming. of that. You're you're opening a chocolate store during Lent? Come on, shame on you! Shame on you! That's yeah. a bad choice. No, it's a great movie though. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, a little religious education with your science in between. <laughs> science. A little religion in the science. Yeah. That's really yeah. in between. Some place in there. I don't know. Yeah. And you know, and we got to hear about an evolving practice. How that changed over time. Sure. That the cake was an epiphany cake, and it was served in January, but now it's slowly evolved into the king cake, which has become a thing that is, uh, you know, associated with New Orleans and and Fat Tuesday. Yeah. So, boom! Look at that. I, I I saw a book recently at a library. A friend of mine, a uh, friend of the show, Leslie Gates, showed this to me. Uh it was all about king cakes. There were like, it was, wow, thousands of king cakes from around the world. Wow! All right. Yeah. Yeah. I Sounds like a all. riveting book. It, well, it, the thing was, it wasn't a recipe king until the end. King until, cake. King cake. Oh, there's another king, king cake. cake. Oh, oh, look, look at that. Looks like a king cake. I get, I'm going to bet what's on the next page. Another king cake. Wow. However, uh, they were all deli- They all look delicious. Of course. Yeah. You, you almost said they all were delicious, which would have been a much bigger yeah. statement. Yes. But the, I'm a fan of cake. Yeah. And ice cream. And ice no, cream. Known fan. Of cake and ice cream. Yeah. Well, there we go. King cake. I think that's and, it. And and the uh the Georgia Reuben. <laughs> Wait, say that first word again. Georgia? Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. There you hey, go. Mock my my sandwich at your peril. That's all. All right. all right. All right. I'm gonna order are, are Rachel. They... The next time I go into some deli, I'm gonna order Rachel. And if they give me some weird sandwich, I'm gonna charge it's, it. To it's you. it's it's turkey. It, it is everything you say it is. Uh-huh. It is I know this turkey is what, coleslaw. This, this is your this is what you say. All right. All right. That's there we it. go. We Catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now. <laughs>